S. Duke Standing Author, Julia London Publication Date, February 22, 2022 Excerpted from The Last Duke Standing by Julia London Copyright 2022 by Dinah Dinwiddie Published by Arrangement with Harlequin Books S.A. Prologue 1844 When Justine was 14, her father took her to the mountainous north country of Wesloria. He said he was to meet with coal barons because they were restless and in need of appeasing. Why? Justine had wondered. Because coal barons are always restless and in need of appeasing, darling, he'd said, as if everyone knew that. She'd imagined large, heavily cloaked men, faces covered in soot, pacing their hearths and muttering their grievances. But the coal barons were, in fact, like all well-dressed Wesleyan gentlemen with clean faces. They peered at her with expressions that ranged from disgust to indifference to curiosity. Don't mind them, her father had said. They are not modern men. Justine and her father were housed at Astasia Castle. It was a fortress that jutted out forebodingly from a rocky outcropping so high on the mountain that the horses labored to pull the royal coach up the steep drive. It was purported to be the best of all the accommodations in the area, afforded to Justine and her father by virtue of the fact Justine's father was the king of Wesloria, and she was the crown princess, the invested heir to the throne. Justine said the castle looked scary. Her father explained that castles were built in this manner so that armies and marauders could be seen advancing from miles away, and runaway brides could be seen fleeing for miles. Runaway brides? Justine had been enthralled by the idea of something so romantic gone so horribly awry. Petter the Mad watched his bride run away with his best knight, and then watched his men chase them for miles before they got away. He was so angry he burned down half the village. Her father did not elaborate further, as the gates had opened and the castellan had come rushing forward, eager to show the king and his heir the old royal castle he proudly kept. Sir Karn wore a dusty blue waistcoat that hung to his thighs, the last four buttons undone to allow for his paunch. His hair, scraggly and gray, had been pulled into an old-fashioned queue at his nape. He kept a ring of keys attached to his waist that clanked with each step he took. He was a student of history, he'd said, and could answer any question they might have about Astasia Castle, and proceeded to exhibit his detailed knowledge of the dank, drafty place with narrow halls and low ceilings. A young Russian prince had died in this room. An ancient queen had lost her life giving birth to her tenth child in that room. Sir Karin showed them to the throne room. More than one monarch's held court here. Justine was accustomed to the opulence of the palace in Wesloria's capital of Sanctities. This looked more like a common room of a public house, it was small and dark, the king and queen's thrones wooden, and the tapestries faded by time and smoke. Another room, Sir Karin pointed out, was where King Moxime had accepted the surrender of the feudal king Igor, thereby uniting all Wesleyans under one rule after generations of strife. My namesake, her father said proudly, forgetting, perhaps, that King Moxime had slaughtered King Igor's forces to unite them all. They came upon a small inner courtyard. Stone walls rose up on three sides of it, but the outer wall was a battlement. Sir Karin pointed to a door at one end of the battlement that led into a keep with narrow windows. We use it for storage now, but they kept the prisoners there in the old days. Worse than any dungeon your young eyes have ever seen, your royal highness. Justine had never seen a dungeon. Is this not where Lord Rabat was beheaded? Her father asked casually. To Justine, he said, that would have been your great-great-uncle Rabat. J, your majesty, the block is still here. 
Sir Karn pointed to a large wooden block that stood alone, about two feet high and two feet wide. It looked to have been weathered by years of sitting in hard sun and wretched winters. Oh, how terrible, Justine said, crinkling her nose. Quite, her father agreed, and explained, with far too much enthusiasm, how a person was made to kneel before the block and lay their neck upon it. A good executioner could make clean work of it with a single stroke. Wop, and the head would tumble into a basket. If I may, your majesty, a good executioner was hard to come by. More miners in these parts than men good with broadswords. Fact is, it took three strikes of the sword to sever Rabat's head completely. Sir Karin felt it necessary to demonstrate the three strikes with his arm. Ah! Justine swallowed down a swell of nausea. Three whacks? Her father repeated, rapt. Couldn't get it done in one? Sir Karin shook his head. Just goes to prove how important it is to keep the broadsword sharp. And to keep someone close who knows how to wield it, her father added. The two men laughed roundly. Justine looked around for some place to sit so that she could put her head between her legs and gulp some air. Alas, the only place to sit was the block. Steady there, my girl. I've not told you who ordered the beheading, her father said. Sir Karin clasped his hands together in anticipation, clearly trying to contain his glee. Your great-great-aunt Queen Elena. Queen Elena had beheaded Lord Rabat? Her husband? Worse. Her brother. Justine gasped. But why? Because Rabat meant to behead her first. Whoever survived the battle here would be crowned the sovereign. Oh, bloody battle it was, too, Sir Karn said eagerly. Four thousand souls lost, many of them falling right off the battlement. Justine backed up a step. A quake was beginning somewhere deep inside her, making her a little short of breath. Her knees felt as if they might buckle, and her skin crawled with anxiety, imagining the loss of so many. Could she not have banished him? And have him slither back like a snake? Her father draped his arm around her shoulders before she could back up all the way to St. Didi's. She did the right thing. Why, minutes before, she was on the block herself. Dear God, Justine whispered. But at the last minute the people here saved her, her father said. She sentenced her brother to die immediately for his insurrection and stood right where we are now to watch his traitorous head roll. Well, Sir Karin said. I wouldn't say it rolled, precisely. The two men laughed again. Don't close your eyes, darling, her father said, squeezing her into his side. Look at that block. Elena was only seventeen years old, but she was very clever. She knew what she had to do to hold power and rule the kingdom. And she ruled a very long time. Forty-three years, all told, Sir Karin said proudly. Queen Elena learned what every sovereign must, be decisive and act quickly. Do you understand? I don't, think so? Justine was starting to feel a bit like she was spinning. You will. Her father dropped his arm. He wandered over to the block to inspect it. We almost named you Elena after her. But they called her Elena the Bi, which, he said. And your mother feared they might call you the same. You said she was a good queen. She was an excellent queen. But sometimes it is difficult to do the things that must be done and keep the admiration of your people at the same time. The spinning was getting worse. She gripped her father's arm. Why? Because people expect a woman to behave like a woman. But a good queen must sometimes behave more like a king for the good of the kingdom. People don't care for it. He shrugged. 
No king or queen can make all their subjects happy all the time. He suddenly smiled. You look a bit like Queen Elena. The very image, Sir Karin piped up. Later that day Justine saw a portrait of Queen Elena. She wasn't smiling, but she didn't appear completely unpleasant. She simply looked, determined. And her dress was elegantly pretty, with lots of pearls sewn into it. Later still, when her father and his men had retired to smoke cigars and talk about coal or some such, Justine returned to the courtyard alone. No one was there, no sentry looking out for marauders or runaway brides. She looked up at the tops of pines bending in a relentless wind, appearing to scrape a dull gray sky. She walked up the steps to the battlement and gazed out over the mountain valley below the castle. She spread her arms wide, closed her eyes and turned her face to the heavens. That was the first time she truly felt it, the pull from somewhere deep, the energy of all the kings and queens who had come before her, rising up to the crown of her head, anchoring her to this earth. She felt the centuries of warfare and struggle, of the people her family had ruled. She felt the enormous responsibilities they'd all carried, the work they'd done to carve a road to the future. Her father had often said that he could feel the weight of his crown on his shoulders. But Justine felt something entirely different. She didn't feel as if it was weighing her down, but more like it was lifting her off her feet and holding her here. She didn't believe this was a conceit on her part, but a tether to her past. She would be a queen. She knew that she would, and standing there, she felt like she should be. She felt born to it. A gust of wind very nearly sent her flying, so she came down from the battlement. She paused just before the block and tried to imagine herself on her knees, knowing her death was imminent. She imagined how she would look. She hoped she would appear strong and noble with no hint of her fear of the pain or the unknown. Being queen was her destiny. She knew it would come. But she hadn't known that it would come so soon. Book Summary when Crown Princess Justine of Wesloria is sent to England to learn the ropes of royalty, she falls under the tutelage of none other than Queen Victoria herself. She's also in the market for a proper husband, one fit to marry the future Queen of Wesloria. Because he knows simply everyone, William, Lord Douglas, the notoriously rakish heir to the Duke of Hamilton's seat in Scotland, and decidedly not husband material, is on hand as an escort of sorts. William has been recruited to keep an eye on the royal matchmaker for the Wesleyan Prime Minister, tasked to ensure the princess is matched with a man of quality, and one who will be sympathetic to the Prime Minister's views. As William and Justine are forced to scrutinize an endless parade of England's best bachelors, they become friends. But when the crowd of potential grooms is steadily called, what if William is the last bachelor standing? By links. Book. Shop.org. Harlequin. Barnes & Noble. Amazon. Books a Million. Powell's. Author Bio. Julia London is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of over 50 novels of historical and contemporary romance. She is the author of the popular Highland Grooms series as well as A Royal Wedding, her most recent series. Julia is the recipient of the RT Book Club Award for Best Historical Romance and a six-time finalist for the prestigious Rita Award for Excellence in Romantic Fiction. She lives in Austin, Texas. Visit her at http colon slash slash www.julialondon.com. Social links. Author website. Facebook, Julia London. Twitter, at Julia Flunden. Instagram, nah. Goodreads.